you so much for tuning in to She's All Over the Place with Kitty Aki. That's me. Welcome, welcome to She's All Over the Place. So excited to have you here to inspire you, add value, educate you, and support you so you can take actionable steps in your life. Reach out to me anytime, leave a comment, subscribe to all my followers and subscribers. Thank you so much. I love you for being here. Oh, um, my new website, chinakas.com is totally bossing. It's been updated. It, it Check it out. Check it out. Also, I'm a, a published author, um, a new poetry book, A Lover's Fairy Tale. So definitely go to Amazon, check it out. Look at the show notes below and uh, support artists and poets. The guest I have on today, his name is Adam, and he actually helped me with my book. And we can like talk about it here and there. But he was so cool and he like reached out to me and I was like, oh my God. And he, I, he like told me he was into giants and he was into like the Greek Bible, the Old Testament and I'm Greek. And, you know, we just honored 200 years of Greek independence and it was major. It was a whole world event and so many people celebrated it in Brazil and Australia and Boston. And it was, it was a major, major ceremony. If you know about it, you know, what's up. If not, definitely Google, watch YouTube and, and, and see the prolific moment on, um, the 200 years of freedom with Greece. And, uh, maybe Adam will chime in and discuss it as well. But, um, my guest today is Professor Adam Stokes, and he is a master of divinity. And he went to Duke University. He has a bachelor's, and he also, um, went to Yale Divinity School and Princeton Seminary. And he's a professor, and he's so cool. And today we're having him on, and we're going to be talking about the Greek Bible. Um, so with no further ado, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Katie. Yes, definitely. Definitely. You are awesome. Thank you. you. I I try. I'm doing good. It's uh, been kind of a busy time. Besides my job as a professor at St. Joe's, uh, my full-time job is that of a high school teacher. And we just started transitioning from online classes uh, back to on campus. How's Um, that going for you? It's been a little bit of an adjustment. So we were on campus up until December and then um, it seemed like there'd be a second wave of COVID. So they had us uh, teaching online um, and I actually got pretty comfortable with it um, teaching online. So going back uh, was kind of weird, but the students are slowly coming back and it's nice because when I was on campus last year, there was hardly any students coming in. The place seemed like a ghost town. Um, it just seemed kind of weird to be in a school with no students. So they're mm-hmm. coming back in and things are slowly starting to return to normal and hopefully it'll stay that way. Mm-hmm. So that's so cool. You're a professor. You're actually the first professor I've ever had on. She's all over the place. So, oh wow, I'm yeah. honored. Yes, me too. Me too. So, so tell us. Um, you're a professor, and what do you teach currently? Um, I teach uh, Introduction to the Old Testament course at uh, St. Joe's University in Philadelphia. This is my tenth year of doing that. So it's yeah, it's been a long time, but I, I love the students. The commute is um, driving from New Jersey over the Ben Franklin Bridge into Philadelphia in the middle of rush hour. But the students are wonderful. Um, I really I do it not only because I love the Old Testament, but I love interacting, you know, with the students there. And it's just it's a really good experience. But 
right now, as things stand, that class is completely online um, as well. But I do get to you know talk to the students via Zoom, just like we're doing now. Um, and I still try to make it a good experience for them. And, you know, one of the reasons why we really connected was um, the legacy of history. And, you know, yeah. uh, there's this uh, uh, Egyptian proverb, I think, and it, it, I mean, it's fragmented, but it's they, they believe you die twice when you physically die. And then when your legacy dies, when people stop telling your story. So when you yeah. were saying you taught the Old Testament and it, it's so cool that people obviously like, go to school for it. But I just thought it'd be really cool to have this conversation with you and then for my listeners who aren't in school or maybe they are in school, but just, you know, to keep the legacy going and talk about the Old Testament. So I I just found it really fascinating. And, um, you know, I'm a human being and there's so much to learn and there's a lot I do not know. And you're a professor, you're a professor and you're educated in this department. So I'm like, hey, let's have Adam on and let's talk about it. So let's just dive right in. Um, Yeah, like let's talk about the Greek Bible and the Old Testament. Where do you want to start? Um, we can start, uh, basically, I think the Greek Bible, Greek Bible would be best to start with. Okay, cool. What can you tell me about the Greek Bible? Oh, that's kind of, uh, yeah, that is kind of a loaded term. So the Greek Bible refers to something known as the, uh, what will eventually become known as the Septuagint. And this was the Bible for Greek-speaking Jews during the time of Second Temple, uh, Judaism. That's a fancy term for, uh, what becomes Judaism. Uh, post 586 BCE, which is when Solomon's temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And then a couple of decades later, 538 BCE, uh, the Jews, Jewish people are allowed back to their homeland. And what emerges from that is Second Temple Judaism. So that's the type of Judaism that Jesus and the apostles would have been adherents to. That would have been their religion. But by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the uh, Jewish people no longer spoke their own language. This happens a lot in immigrant communities. I know you're Greek. My wife is Haitian. And basically, um, our nieces and nephews, they don't speak Haitian Creole. A lot of immigrants um, who have come here to the U.S. after a couple generations, they don't speak Italian or Irish um, or even Greek. Um, so the same thing happened with uh, the Jewish people. Their language was Hebrew. Um, it became Aramaic. And then when Alexander the Great came on the scene and kind of made everything Greek in the ancient world, everybody spoke Greek, including the Jews. And so they forgot basically their own language. So they needed a translation of their sacred scriptures or else they wouldn't even be able to read uh, their own scriptures. So in the process of time, um, over uh, many decades, even centuries, what emerges is a Greek Bible, but translated by many different people, composed by many different editors. There is kind of a sense when we talk about the Greek Bible nowadays that only one person translated it, but that's not the case. There, Back in the day, there was a legend called the Legend of Aristius, which claimed that 70 rabbis went into 70 different caves and came out with the same Greek translation. But that's, They spoke that's, Greek. Uh, yes, according to the legend, yes. So Who's um, the legend? Aristius. It's a very, it's an ancient text to kind of explain how the Greek Bible came to be. And when was that? Before 500 BC? Um, no, this was after. This was during the Alexandrian period. Oh, okay. And when was that period exactly? 
This has been around the second century BCE. Got it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, hello, welcome to She's All Over the Place. I'm sorry, I sound like a total nerd. Yes. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, that's why we're here. It's like we don't normally have these conversations unless you're studying at, you know, Princeton or Yale, so or at another school. So I just I just thought it'd be really cool to pop it into She's All Over the Place because that's what She's All Over the Place is about. So language. When did you first learn about the Subtugent? Well, you know, it's funny because I um, I was raised in the Baptist tradition. I'm part of the Latter-day Saint tradition now, but I was raised Baptist, and our Bible was basically the King James Version. And I knew it was translated from the Hebrew, but I never knew uh, growing up that different Bible versions um, existed. I kind of knew that the Latin Vulgate existed because um, I took Latin in high school, and we had to read. Um, I was at a Christian school, and so we had to read passages from the Latin Vulgate. But I really didn't know any other translations existed. So I didn't really learn. I didn't even know there was a, was a Greek translation to the Bible until I got um, to uh, divinity school and started taking uh, and started learning Greek. And we would read little passages uh, from uh, the Septuagint or the Greek Old Testament and the New Testament. And I remember asking my professor, you know, what's this Septuagint thing? And he kind of, uh, he said, if you can read the New Testament, you'll be able to read the Septuagint. So um, that got me really interested uh, in, in the Greek Bible. So I think my case is similar to many Christians, unless you're you grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church um, or from that tradition or Russian Orthodox Church, which bases their Old Testament on the Septuagint. Um, you don't really know what the Septuagint is, which is kind of a shame because the Septuagint was the actual Bible that would have been used by Jesus and the apostles, not the Hebrew text which um, is is commonly used for many English translations. I grew up Greek Orthodox Christian, and we go by um, the Old Calendar, the New Testament, and the King James Version of the Bible. Yeah, um, so I think in most, especially in the West, in America, whatever tradition, uh, whatever Christian tradition you're a part of, the King James Version is just going to be infused into that in some way. If you go to a Catholic bookstore, there's a Catholic bookstore down the street from where I live, um, and they sell King James Bibles, even though that's a Protestant uh, rather than a Catholic uh, translation. But at least in the Greek Orthodox tradition, um, you're kind of exposed to the Greek Old Testament through the liturgy. So uh, kind of the liturgical rite that you get in Greek Orthodoxy quotes a lot from both the Greek Old New Testament as well as the Septuagint or Greek Old Testament. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Very, very, very cool. Very cool. This is amazing. Uh, share with us your in, um, encounter and your background with the Septuagint. Or do yes. you want to, like tell us that in a nutshell, or is there anything more you want to add to that? I, I can say, I can definitely say some more about that. So I had a very kind of, yes, the best word uh, to use would be an intimate experience uh, with the uh, uh, Septuagint uh, in divinity school. I was kind of a nerd. Um, I had a social life, but I would spend hours to myself uh, just reading. And I got really, really involved in the Septuagint. And that was a time when um, I also got just really involved in, really interested in studying uh, the classical world. So the Greco-Roman world, Greek mythology, ancient Greek uh, religion and culture, ancient Roman culture. So the Septuagint for me was kind of part of that. And what I used to find fascinating is that the Septuagint uh, translators would often, you could kind of tell kind of the uh, Hellenistic or Alexandrian context that they were writing in because they bring in a lot of Greek mythology into the Bible, which I thought was really cool. So you have the mention of Gigantes, the giants, you have mention of the sirens, which you get in Odysseus. 
in, in Odysseus' story, the Odyssey, uh, by Homer. You get mentions of Hades and Tartarus. And all these things that you find in Greek mythology, you also find uh, in in the Septuagint. So the Septuagint uh, was kind of my friend, and it kind of became my Bible over and above the King James Version that I was raised with uh, when I was in divinity school. And I I went on to try and uh, do a doctorate that didn't work out, but a lot of my uh, doctoral work was uh, translating uh, portions um, of the Septuagint, particularly uh, the Septuagint version of Job of the book of Job. And even in that, you get references to Greek mythology. So you have, uh, for example, the Horn of Almathea or the Cornucopia, which is associated, I should know this, I'm a Latin teacher, with either Zeus or Dionysus. But um, there's a lot of like connections, which I love, between Greek mythology and the material that you get uh, in, in the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's really something uh, the Septuagint is uh, kind of like the black sheep of the family. It doesn't get enough. Cre- it doesn't get enough credit and recognition, especially here in the West, where you know, um, in biblical scholarship, we're so focused on the Hebrew text. On yeah, basically on I the mean, Hebrew text, on the Hebrew tradition, and nobody really knows about the Septuagint. And that's really that's really kind of sad. And I wish I wish more people knew about it. And I think if I can do my own little part right now here now uh, to try and make people to try and get people to uh, to know what that is. Well, that's why we're here. And that's why yeah. it's one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show to like yeah. bring light to it because it's such a legendary sacred piece, like literally <laughs> from yeah. Yeah. so many centuries. I mean, ago. it becomes it becomes the Old Testament for the early Christian church. So for them, that was their Bible. And this is before the New Testament comes into existence. Uh, you can't have a New Testament until Jesus and the apostles have done their thing. So for the early Christians, it was um, the the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament was their Bible. Okay. And then I just wonder, since you've read it uh, multiple times, have you you've studied oh, it yes. multiple times? So like I, I've seen the Bible, like a lot of people have seen and read the Bible. And so is it as many pages, more pages, less pages, like fewer pages? Like how many pages is it around? <laughs> well, that that's a good question. Um I should say that there's not really what we call Septuagint is kind of a conglomeration of uh, different texts that have been translated over the course of many decades, um, even centuries. Those texts don't get codified or unified till uh, around uh, the uh, Roman Christian era. So when Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, you start to get codexes, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, which contain whole versions of the Septuagint. Um, and even those versions kind of differ amongst themselves. The Perhaps the most notable difference that you get is that the Septuagint contains um, several other books that you don't get in your King James Version or your NIV or in most uh, modern English Bibles, um, at least from the Protestant tradition. Um, so um, it contains books that are called uh, apocryphal books or deuterocanonical books um, that the Catholic tradition has because uh, the Catholic tradition goes with the number of books that are in the Septuagint, but Protestant tradition doesn't have. So you have these additional books that are actually really interesting, really cool. I'm actually in the process of writing a commentary on one of them now, uh, but they're additions to the book of Daniel, additions to the book of Esther, and then you have uh, brand new stories, several of them involving women, Judith, uh, Susanna, then Tobit. Um, so you have these additional books uh, that were for early Christians considered part of the canon and were considered part of the Christian canon for centuries until the Protestant Reformation and then people like Martin Luther 
uh, say we're going to go back to the Hebrew text uh, that doesn't contain these books, and so they're taken out. He did? Oh, uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Luther. Uh, no, not uh, Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, uh, the reformer. Yes. Okay, okay, excuse me. <laughs> excuse me. The angry old, uh, yeah, the angry old uh, German guy. Yes. So, oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, which communities where in the world from your researches and studies uh, to this day right now uh, follow the Septuagint? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, um, basically the Septuagint, many of its books get translated into Latin. So the Roman Catholic Church keeps the same number of books that are in the Septuagint, but the Greek Orthodox Church uses the Septuagint directly, um, as you know, and so do most Eastern Orthodox churches. They'll use uh, a translation that comes from the Septuagint. So uh, the Russian Orthodox Church uses, in Russian, a translation from the Septuagint. And then in Africa, the Coptic Church and the Ethiopian Church, uh, their Old Testament canon also is based on the Septuagint. So it's actually something, um, again, kind of the contrast between the East and the West. Um, If you go to Eastern countries, uh, they know about the Septuagint, but over here in the West, um, it's still kind of something that that's new to people. I have overdrive. Do you know overdrive? Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. So for- my wife uses that. Yep. Okay. For Love the it. listener and the viewer, if you're watching this on the video on YouTube, go to the sophisticated psychos on YouTube. If you want to see the video and if you're listening on the audio for, you know, the listener and the viewer, um, so if you don't know what Overdrive is, it's an app and you can download up to it's they're connected with the library. They have a yeah. deal with the library. So you can download up to 30 ebooks per month for free and uh, 30 audiobooks. I wonder if there are audiobooks on the Septuagint on there. Yeah, there's a great one. I'll, I'll recommend it because um, I listened to it. Um, it's called When God uh, Spoke Greek. Um, so, and let me see if I can track down the author's name. I have it right here. Just give me a second. I'm going to uh, tell my mom because we love audiobooks, and she's like, she's just reading. She reads nonstop. So I'm going to share that with her. Yeah, it's, it's really good. So it's by a guy named Timothy Michael Law, and it's about the history of the Septuagint. Basically, it's formation, the difference between the Septuagint and the Hebrew text. And he does it in a way, uh, in contrast to myself. That is not really, uh, that is uh, super easy to follow and not too confusing. Mm, you're great. You're great. I mean, you're just for showing up and sharing your knowledge. I, I'm so grateful. And and your education and the schools you went to. And you know what I mean? You took action in your life to to be an educator, to inform human beings. Most people are just, I don't say most people are so uneducated, but I mean, come on. I mean, you know some people out there. I mean, you are taking actionable steps. I mean, your family and your children are so blessed and lucky to have you. And and the students, you, you show up for the students. Students and, and you care and you, you're so kind and and you showed up for me you know like you were a teacher for me to to help me with my book you supported me the the best way you could you know you're you're a self-published author you told me your experience you had a book deal with a publication and then you did self-publishing and you said the self-publishing route was so much better and uh please share um your book with us what is your book about um uh, so i have a couple of books out um so my the one i self-published was uh called from Egypt to Ohio, uh, where I actually, um, I do a quote from the Septuagint several times there, but it's not about the Septuagint. It's actually about uh, the tradition of ancient giants in North America, which is my other uh, kind of uh, hobby. So um, I kind of do a kind of amateur archaeologist thing. I actually write for a uh, archaeology magazine, Ancient American, uh, which I proudly write for. 
And uh, I'm very curious as to which ancient American focuses on uh, the history of pre-Columbia America and kind of the tradition of uh, these giants that you find in Native American, Native American oral tradition, as well as uh, kind of the physical evidence for these giants. And so I had shopped the book around, wasn't really uh, some of the publishers that I was shopping it to, wasn't really kind of happy with the way they wanted the book to go. So I was like, why don't I do it myself and just have complete control over it? Yeah. So out of that emerged uh, this book, and it actually it worked out really, really well. Um, I have two other books that are published. Um, they're Old Testament books. Uh, one is a introduction, a general introduction to the Old Testament called Perspectives in the Old Testament. And then another one is my translation of several books from the Latin text of the Old Testament called the Latin Scrolls. And those are published by Cognella Press. I have a very good relationship with them. As with anything, the more control you have, the more you can have a book, the more your book can be kind of in the image, to use a biblical term, uh, that you want it to be. So uh, the self-publishing was it was just a really good experience. I'll probably go that route again uh, with uh, future publications. I love this. And just so you know, I've already started before I, my book, my first book was published. I've already started putting together my second book. I think I told you I'm, I'm, I'm on yeah. the, I'm on the awesome. road. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. So, um, just, um, those books will be in the show notes. Uh, so everyone, you can just click and pick up the books. Um, so yeah, moving right along here, um, the history and content of the Septuagint. Let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. So, um, so it's actually, uh, Origins, it's content. Yeah. So, as I mentioned before, it kind of arises after Alexander the Great comes to power. Um, he basically he brings Greek tradition uh, to basically the entire known world uh, at the time. And so, it's interesting because uh, Judaism during this time, and this has kind of been uh, the case throughout history, is seeking mm-hmm. two things: kind of how to integrate into this larger Greek culture while retaining its own identity and its own culture. Um, so, the Septuagint is kind of a bridge that allows uh, the Jewish people to do that. So it allows them, you know, they're Greek speaking. It allows them to, you know, interact with Greek culture, Greek speaking culture, while at the same time, it's a way for them to preserve and keep and to protect their traditions. So did that make sense? Oh, no, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, I was just thinking this whole entire time. You know, I love Jewish people. I love Jewish people my whole entire life. I grew up a lot, around a lot of Jewish people yeah. in my community here. And I just, I just really uh, like admire and respect Jewish people and their culture and their yeah. tradition. And there's something sacred and they're just, because you know, I'm yeah. Greek. So in like your yeah. cultured, I'm cultured, like just to like observe other people's culture, although like we're all connected and we respect one another, just there's something about culture and just like me admiring because like my blood isn't Jewish, but um, I just really admire and respect the culture. And, and a lot of my Jewish friends, they're just like, we're the same, we're the same, you know, and they're, it's like the Mediterranean and the hummus and the food. And it's, it's very similar. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, like, it's just, it's just, I, I just wanted to just give a shout out and just like pay honor and respect. And it's just so cool how like, we were just so interconnected back in the day before we were around and the, and the yeah. history of it. And just to be, you know, watching, you know, knowing history, learning about history, the journey and and getting some more details from you about it. So thank you. Yeah, Share more, yeah. please. Yeah. Um, no, I have I have close ties to the Jewish community as well. Um, one of uh, my professors who kind of I've, I've always referred to him as a second grandfather uh, he was Jewish. He left the Judaic Studies Department at Duke University. Um, and I still keep in touch with him. Both him and his wife were archaeologists. I think they met while they were archaeologists. It's absolutely adorable. Um, but um, 
they uh i still keep in touch with them uh very close to them uh just wonderful people and um a lot of my you know support um when i was going through school was from the jewish communities for which i'm very much i'm very much indebted so um yeah so i I feel exactly exactly the same way even in 21st century we'll talk about this kind of this dialectic of you know adapting to the larger culture while retaining their own traditions i think you know, I think every every ethnic group has that, but I think uh, especially in the history of Judaism, you see this time and time again. You see it with, you know, uh, what becomes uh, the Septuagint. Um, and a lot of the, the unique features, a lot of the content that you get in the Septuagint is kind of an attempt to adapt to the larger world. So uh, I'll give an example. So, uh, for example, the oracles in uh, the books, the prophecies, I should say, oracles is kind of too fancy of a term, but the prophecies in Isaiah and Jeremiah, they are in the Hebrew kind of very polemical and very harsh against non-Israelites. So all of these non-Israelite nations, it's hell and damnation, uh, screw you, you're going to burn and everything. That language is kind of modified and toned down in the Greek translation. So those oracles are placed, are set in other parts of the book. Um, so the book doesn't, it has a different feel, a totally different feel when you read it in Greek. Um, and it's much more kind of, it's less polemical, less anti-Israel than you get in the original Hebrew text. And that is that the, the and that is a case where the content has been directly informed by the Septuagint's environment. And in this uh, kind of uh, attempt of uh, Second Temple Jews to kind of assimilate to the environment around them while uh, retaining their own heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a very uh, sensitive line. You know, it sounds very sensitive of, you know, when circumstances and things happen and then people make choices and, you know, um, it's, it's wild how yeah. uh, culture and diversity and, and how, uh, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speechless, but I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So um, anything else on that on that topic? Or should we move on to um, the Septuagint is uh, used by Greek-speaking Jews than Christians? So I think we covered that. Is there anything else you want to mention about that? Yeah, um, I'll say uh, one other thing. So in modern-day Judaism, they go by uh, basically the Hebrew text, um, or what is known as the Masoretic tradition in their reading of the Bible. Um, and the reason for that, there's a very specific reason for that, and it has to do with Jewish interaction with Christians. So the Septuagint, I always tell my students, even though um, it's popular uh, within Christianity, it was originally a Jewish text. But as Christianity became popular and Greek-speaking Jews became Christian, uh, the Septuagint uh, became the uh, de facto Christian Old Testament. Jews started to kind of, uh, in their interactions with Christians, move away from the Greek text and start to kind of relearn their original language, go back to their original language, uh, Hebrew. And so they veer back towards the original Hebrew text, while Christianity in its canon and the number of books that it has uh, sticks with kind of the Septuagint until the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah. So basically the Septuagint, even though it's originally a Jewish book, a Jewish work, 
basically in modern times, uh, except for the purposes of biblical studies, uh, when Jewish scholars are looking at, you know, the different versions of the Old Testament, the Septuagint is not really popular within Judaism. It's not really a text that's used in uh, the uh, liturgical uh, tradition uh, within Judaism. It's kind of was a text that the Septuagint was kind of a text that was supplanted by Christians, even though it's originally a Jewish text. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. And then um, another topic that we're still talking about, the use of Septuagint in Orthodox Greek liturgy. Well, I would say uh, to anybody within the sound of my voice, if you've never been to a Greek Orthodox church service, you need to just go. Here in South Jersey, there's one, uh, and there's a Greek Orthodox church in Princeton. Um, just go. The liturgy, when I was at Yale, when I, was, when I lived in New Haven, there was a Greek Orthodox church there, and I would go from time to time, and you just get to hear the liturgy. And even if you don't know Greek, the liturgy is beautiful, and it comes from the uh, Septuagint or uh, Greek Old Testament. Um, so um, I think everybody, um, if you can't get to a Greek Orthodox church, just Google uh, Greek Orthodox liturgy on, uh, or uh, type it in on YouTube uh, so you can listen to it. But that liturgy, um, it's often uh, sung, um, just as in Judaism, the liturgy is sung. Um, and uh, it, it's absolutely beautiful. And it comes from uh, the Greek Old Testament. Yeah, so my um, church, uh, yeah, I'll be going to church this Sunday. I love going to church. And growing up, uh, you know, the priest would just, it would be in Greek, the whole thing, just in Greek. And um, even when you're like a kid and you're learning basic Greek, sometimes because of the liturgy, it's just sometimes you just don't understand, you know, the breakdown yeah. of it. But um, it's really, really beautiful. And then, and then through the years, we would have the priest speak in Greek, and then he would also translate to English which was awesome. So, you know, sometimes if you go, you just hear, like you say, the sound, the tone, the vibration, the sacredness of it is gorgeous, um, you know, and if it can be translated to English as well. And then there's, you know, the books that you can follow along. But one of the, one of the, um, you know, uh, sing-songy chants is, Kyrie song, Kyrie song, Kyrie song. It's just, it's just like, it's like so meditative and healing. Yeah. And yeah. Lord have mercy. So that's actually, the Kyrie is actually a part of the Greek liturgy coming from the Greek Old Testament that's found in uh, Roman Catholic tradition as well. So they do the Kyrie as well during the Latin Mass. And then for the rites for the dead in uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, they quote from a book of the Septuagint, Second Ezra. I believe the quote is, I'm paraphrasing big time here, uh, give them eternal rest and peace, uh, but that comes from the Septuagint. So even though the Roman Catholic Church uh, followed the Latin translation of the Bible um, and in modern times has gone kind of like the Protestants back to the Hebrew, a lot of that Septuagint tradition and the influence of the Septuagint is seen even in the Roman Catholic tradition. So people listening, for the viewer and the listener, what would you like them to know? What would you like them to leave with after hearing your words and, you know, the legacy, carrying on this legacy? What are like one or two things you want them to know 
Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I think I want them to know that if anything, that the Septuagint uh, is just as much of an important translation of the Bible as uh, the King James or uh, any other of your uh, modern translations. And you don't need to know Greek to kind of engage with the Septuagint. There are translations of the Septuagint out there that into English that uh, you can buy um, and you can kind of read and kind of get a pretty good understanding of the Septuagint, of what the Septuagint is saying um, for yourself. So there is something called the New English Translation of the Septuagint. Biblical scholars call it NETS uh, for short, but it's a really, really good, very literal English translation of the Septuagint, and, it, and it's accessible uh, to anybody. I even think it's on. it was online for a while because um, I used to use it when I was working on uh, the Septuagint. Uh, but what I guess my... I guess my main concern, I guess my main desire is that more people know about the Septuagint. Um, like I said, it's just been relegated to kind of a footnote in uh, the history of the Bible and the history of interpretation of the Bible. It's very, very important. Um, without the Septuagint, we probably wouldn't have an Old Testament in, in the first place. So it's, it's very, very important in, in understanding the Bible. And I think that, you know, if you come, whether you come to it just as, you know, ancient literature, or if you come to it uh, from a religious perspective, I think you'll have a powerful experience with it. And I want to say how many years, but I actually want to say how many decades have you been studying the Septuagint? <laughs> Heck of a long time. So um, kind of going through three decades now. So I started in uh, graduate school, so it's like 2003 or something so all the way through the 2010s and now we're in the 2020s so a long time at least like 17 years so book has been with me for a while and then i mean i see a glow in your face and i'm glowing because it's just like wow to the devotion and the passion like you said earlier and i'm just wondering like on a personal level how was it called to you and was it a knowing when it happened and have you reflected through the years of why and like how it came to be for you to be on this path, the conclusion of, of this. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, I've always, um, I'm a Latin teacher. That's my main occupation. I, um, I've always loved languages. Um, I've always, it's always been a mystical experience for me uh, to engage with languages of any type. And so that's always, that's always been a passion of mine. I have a special place for, you know, classical languages, but not, but, you know, I've, I lived in Germany for a while. I, I spoke German. So uh, I know several other languages and uh, languages have always been and been something very special for me. So I think in engaging with the Septuagint where, you know, God, as uh, this, the title of uh, Timothy's book, uh, when God spoke Greek, where God speaks Greek, where everybody speaks Greek, where all my favorite characters speak Greek. That was a very kind of mystical um, experience uh, for me. So having to struggle, you know, when I first uh, engaged with the Septuagint, I was just learning Greek. So having to struggle to read it and then, you know, over the course of time, being able to read it much, much better was kind of a journey, was kind of a, for me, if that makes sense, kind of a spiritual um, experience. And so, um, and, and like I said, uh, a time in my life, my, my 20s were, not to get too personal here, but my 20s were just, yeah, just kind of a mess, you know, um, as I think a lot of people's 20s are, you know, you're on, you're on your own for the very first time and, you know, trying to navigate the larger world, especially when you're a five foot two black man is kind of a difficult, was kind of a difficult thing. And so the Septuagint, like I said before, was, was kind of my companion uh, through that. So it has, uh -huh. it has a very, a very personal and very powerful place. 
in my heart. That's so sweet. That's so sweet. And and I remember when you like first shared with me and you were like, oh yeah, I had all this time and you were just like in, in the library, you were just studying. I just had my visuals of you studying and it's like you had all that time then and now you don't. So it's like, it was so prolific <laughs> no. to have all no. that time then to have such a sacred time in your life to be able to, to study that. It's just, it's, it's, it was, it's, it was such a gift for you. And, and at the no, time, did you know at the time it was such a sacred gift or were you just kind of studying or did you always know it was really something? It, it was something, it was sacred to me. I mean, it was, it was, it was very special mm-hmm. uh, from, mm-hmm. I think from the moment, I found out about the Septuagint and, you know, I, I remember buying, I, I was flat broke uh, in my early twenties, but I found a way to scrounge up $80 and buy my own Septuagint. Yes, it's, it's really pricey. It's academic. You have to get it from an academic bookstore, but I bought my, I still have that Septuagint. I wish I have a copy. Wow. This is not my, uh, my the one I bought is actually uh, in the other room, but this is a copy that's similar to it. Um, and so I bought this for like, uh, something like this for like $80. And I and that started was back reading, then. That was back in 2003. Yeah. So it, I started, are they more now or the same price? or is They're the a little bit more now. now. So wow. I was trying to find, they have this nice edition now where it's both the, uh, the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, and they call it the Greek Bible. I think it's Biblia Greca, and that's like that sucker is like one hundred and twenty or one hundred and fifty dollars. So, oh my god, um, I should get it as a gift for my mom and dad. That'd you should, so you should. Cool. It's beautiful. I think the font's a little bit too small on it, wow. but um, but it's still um, it, it's still it would be a great gift. I, I, like, send me a I, link. I, I, so yeah, I will. Get like a bogus one. Send me a link. So, and I'll even send me a link, and I'll even put it in the show notes. You know, just so because you go on Amazon or you you search, and it's like there's so much stuff out there. You want to get the yeah. off authentic one. So I know I can trust you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely do that. And then I'm just wondering too, like you see all these different students over the years. So when, when you see these students are, is there a common thread with the students that you find and how are they called to come take your course? Yeah, well, I, I think I've gained a reputation on at the school I teach at St. Joe's um, as kind of being uh, the nutty professor. So I try to make the uh, experience of, you know, interacting with the Bible because many of them are coming from it. They're coming to the Bible for the first time. Um, not all of my students. It's a largely Irish, Italian community at SJU. So some of them have a Catholic background. If they've gone to Sunday school. They'll know some of this stuff, but a lot of my students don't. So I try to make it as accessible to them as possible. So I bring in a lot of pop culture stuff and I'm just, uh, I'm just kind of uh, really laid back about it. It's kind of like us having a conversation now. So I'm not, I never get up on, not since Mike, my first or second year of teaching, have I ever gotten uh, to a, gotten on a podium and started like just uh, speaking a lecture? I don't do that. So mm-hmm. it's very kind of laid back, which the students seem to like. My class is always, uh, as to use a theater term, sold out. Students are always on the wait list for it, always asking to get in. So um, it's been a very successful course. Um, I think the thing that stands out is that all of them come to the Old Testament with a humble curiosity. Um, I've never, I've rarely had students who say, you know, I know it all. They're, they're interested on the journey that I, that I can take them on. And uh, I try to make it as, as cool of a journey as possible. You are so cool. You are so cool. You really are. <laughs> Anything else you would like to share with the listener, the viewer? Yeah, I, uh, so a lot of the stuff that we talked about today uh, can be found um, in uh, my book, Perspectives of the Old Testament. Um, 
Um, and I have, uh, I talk about this stuff as well on my Facebook page and on my Instagram page. So I'm always posting Bible stuff uh, on there. And I'm hoping right now, um, as I said earlier, I'm actually working on a commentary on one of the books of the Septuagint, um, the additions to Daniel. Um, but I'm hoping uh, to one day do a translation, um, at least of selections. The Septuagint is a very big book, as you can see. Um, but one day I'm hoping to do a translation that contains uh, some selections from the Septuagint uh, for uh, for my students. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see we'll see what happens with that. So I have a lot on my plate right now, actually. So it probably wouldn't happen for a few years. Well, it's a great goal to have. And then I'll have the Facebook group in the show notes as well. But do you just want to shout out the name of the Facebook group? Yeah. So um, I have um, a, it's part of my uh, business. So on this, besides being a college professor and a a high school teacher, I'm also a Latin tutorer. And my business is called Lingua Classica. So that's on Facebook. Um, And I also have, which you follow, uh, my uh, Instagram account, Adam the Giant Guy, where I have stuff about the Bible, stuff about uh, giants, stuff about ancient civilization in general, because uh, I have a you know, a big love for ancient civilizations all over the world. Well, I would love to have you on uh, season four if she's all over the place and we can talk about giants. With, with that would be awesome. Okay. Oh, I'm yeah. Totally okay. okay go. Ah, I Absolutely. love that. Absolutely. Cool. 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 That would be a lot of fun. Okay. So wrapping up here, but before we go, um, just because I'm Greek and you like Greek mythology, um, do you have do you have like one of your favorite Greek stories about Greek mythology? Anything you want to share? Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. There are so many of them. Let me see. I think that my all-time favorite one would be uh, Polyphemus and Odysseus uh, in the Odyssey uh, by Homer. So... Did you Polyphemus. read your, wait, I'm sorry. Did you read the full Odyssey? Did you read the full book? Um, I've read it in English translation, yes. And I've okay. read parts of it in Greek. Okay. I, so, I, I listened to it on audio. Yeah, there's a um there's a really good translation that just came out. It's the first translation done by a uh, female classical scholar. Emily, I'm trying to remember her name. Of course, I'm blanking on it, but so it's not cool. Emily Watson, but it's a really, really good translation. Uh, I recommend every anyone to read it. But there's uh, so in the Odyssey, there's a story of Polyphemus the giant and Odysseus and his men get stranded on this island with Polyphemus. And Polyphemus is just a big um, a-hole, if I could use that term here. He uh, basically bullies Odysseus and his men. He actually eats some of them. And um, Odysseus has to use his cunning and his skill uh, to figure a way out of this situation. And as with a lot of Greek mythology, there's always a higher theme. There's always a higher moral here. And I think, you know, what I've loved about this story so much, um, reflecting on my own experiences in life, is that sometimes, you know, you'll find yourself in a bad situation. There's nothing you can do about it. But you can use, uh, you know, your God-given wisdom and your intelligence to try and make the best of it and even figure a way out of that situation. So that's what always struck me about that story. So I read that story and I have my students read that story over and over again. You know, we're g- we're just going to have to have you on for another episode just talking about Greek mythology also. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Oh, uh, God, I love it. That's going to be so much fun. That's going to be so much fun. Uh, one of my favorite books is called The Republic by Plato. Yes, yes. And reading that book was just so deep for me as a youngster growing up. It really gave me the structure and the platform of the world for humanity of being just and unjust. Like it doesn't matter about emotions. It's about just 
and unjust. And so I feel like I'm just like straight down the narrow. So no matter how I feel emotionally, I I just go to that. Justice. Is it just or unjust? It's just, it's always just, it's just a part of my core, you know? Yeah. Plato's good stuff. Yeah. You can't go wrong with Plato. The Republic is amazing. I definitely highly recommend The Republic. And I remember when I was a kid, like a teenager, I was reading um, Socrates and his definition of a philosopher was a person who was a lover of wisdom. And I'm like, oh, like I'm a lover of wisdom. I'm a lover of wisdom. Like I'm a seeker. I'm a lover. I'm a philosopher because I'm a seeker and I'm a lover of wisdom. So we think of philosophers as people who have these PhDs and, you know, uh, Sarta or Derrida. Uh, But no, a philosopher is anybody who loves wisdom. Yeah. And like, I know, I think I told you recently, because I've only told a couple of people because I haven't really been like announcing it. But I mean, I am Socrates' younger sister. Like literally I'm representing Socrates, like love Socrates. And I'm, I'm so connected ever since day one to Socrates. Like number one, who have you been like really connected to? Yeah, I think uh, in the ancient world, there are, there's a couple of people. I would say um, the Emperor Claudius, I had an instant connection with him. Why? Um, yeah, well, um, if you know about the background of Claudius, we're not quite sure what he had. It could have been ADD or autism or something. We know he's made fun of it. People make fun of him because of it. Uh, but what's really fascinating about Claudius is that even though he was basically born with what we might deem disadvantages, he uh, doesn't let that get him down. He actually uh, basically makes his way to eventually becoming the ruler of the world as the Roman emperor. And that's something um, that I've, uh, I've, always, I've always appreciated. I think for people who struggle uh, in various ways, if there's a physical or a mental um, disability, you know, looking um, at someone like Claudius is, uh, is kind of, as kind of a role model is, is something that can be very, very um, empowering. There's also um, a great miniseries uh, with my, um, the, uh, one of my favorite actors, Eric Jacoby, um, I, Claudius, um, great BBC miniseries. Uh, and it actually presents Claudius, I think, think very, very well as someone who has this physical or mental disability, but, you know, in spite of that, rises and does great um, and wonderful things. Okay, I'm, I'm going to watch that for one thing. Uh, you another, watch thing it. another thing, it's called, quote unquote, the underdog. And and I love that you said that because like everyone loves like the hero story of someone who's uh, had the struggle and then has what you're talking about. But I'm a big um, fan of mental health and I'm an advocate for mental health. And when I was a kid, my number one thing in career decision making class, there was a hundred things. Literally, there was a hundred different things. And out of the hundred, you had to pick 20. And so I selected 20. And out of the 20, you had to prioritize them. And number one, I put health. Because I figured if I have health, I could have everything else on the list. However, when I was a kid, I was thinking health as in my physical health. I wasn't thinking as my stamina because I was a cross-country runner. I wasn't thinking mental health. And so through the journey of life, learning about emotional intelligence, emotional health, and like, how are you feeling? And like talking to kids now and talking to people, like not just say, hey, how are you doing? Like express your emotions, like, you know, and and making it comfortable for kids to be like, get the emotions out because it's a wave. It comes and goes. So I'm a big fan of of mental health. And that's another podcast. But it's so important. Um, um, And a lot of, you know, I teach high school students. I encounter um, at least before COVID, I would count at least a thousand high school students in the course of a day. And And, you know, they're all I can see sometimes that they're just trying to keep everything in. And I'm like, you know, 
there's so much you're going through. I'm like, you know, no, you know, don't do that. And I direct them to, you know, guidance and counseling. Um, but I also try to make my space kind of a free space, an open space where they can, you know, express themselves if need be as well. And that they know that I'm always here for them. Mm, good. Many blessings for you. That's so important just to hold the space for people, you know, to let them express and, and get it out. So it's so important. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. And actually, um, I have a lot of teenagers who listen to my show. So oh, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. Um, so this one's for you, kids. <laughs> okay, cool. So, um, wow, Professor Adam Stokes, thank you so much for being on She's All Over the Place. And it looks like we're going to have you back for a couple of different topics. This was great, Katie. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to our future conversations. Yay. Okay, cool. All right. Peace out. Take good care. And we'll uh, see you next week. Take care, Katie. Thank you for your time. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Katie Yeki, over and out. Mm-hmm. <laughs>